Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? I am doing great, Jack. Great to be here. Wonderful studio full of folks. Let's go. We do have a lot of people. Well, we're not going to get to them yet. I have a whole shtick to do. Oh, well, go. And I'm going to do my shtick. Shtick away. All right. Here's the thing. It's more than just shtick. I have a purpose behind my shtick. The year... You know, John, is coming to an end. Yeah. In fact, this will be our last podcast of the year. I'm a little sad. I know. I know. It's really been a blast doing this. We've actually come a long way. We have a nice little audience going. Nice. We've had some absolutely unbelievable guests. Great. Notwithstanding who's with us today. Of I'm course. Kidding. I'm kidding. I'm of course. Kidding. They are also outstanding. And people really seem to like it. But so before we get into our conversation, I just want to take a minute to thank some people. Okay. First, I want to thank our old friends, Travis and Rachel. Oh, yeah. For helping launch this thing. Yep, yep. Love them. They made the they made starting this podcast easy and fun. Yep. They helped set the tone and the culture of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And, John, I want to thank you. You've been great. And this would literally not be, we would literally not be doing this if not for you. Well, so, I, I, thank you. I, so happy to be part of this. I love it, and I love this whole concept. So, power on. We'll keep doing it until they tell us we can't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Lastly, I want to thank everyone that takes time out of their day to listen to the Power Hour, because obviously, if it wasn't for them, we'd have no reason to do this. So, thank, thank you to all of you who take time to listen. I mean that sincerely. Yep. If not, we'd be talking to the wall. <laughs> we would be talking to the wall. We kind of are, but... Yeah, literally. Well, literally, figuratively. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. (laughs) So, John, I had a meeting today, earlier today, with some folks from Europe on energy and environmental issues. Uh Uh-oh. No, no, they were great people. Okay, okay. We agreed on a lot. We all want plenty of energy to fuel our economies. We don't want to be dependent on adversarial nations. And we all want a clean environment. Yes. But... But when it comes to these Europeans and energy policy, there's always a big but involved. (laughs) I was struck, but I'm not surprised (laughs) by how their entire energy policy revolves around getting rid of gas, oil and coal. Yeah. Above all else, they see renewables as central to everything. They can't even seemingly get their heads around the idea that some of us actually think that expanding the use of hydrocarbons is a good thing. Like What? Yeah. It's like their head explodes when you mention that. Now, I don't want to accuse the folks I was talking to this morning, not that they will listen to this podcast necessarily or no, but what I'm about to say does not apply to them. But so many of the people that share their views on renewables, they just really demonize hydrocarbons. They have no sense of the role that gas, oil, and coal Right. Play in bettering the human experience. Mm-hmm. So that got me to thinking, as these things tend to do, we need to do a better job of educating folks about the role of hydrocarbons. Absolutely. Not just in today's world, but really in the evolution of society. I don't think people, re- I mean, we all know we need to put gas in our car. 
But I don't think people really have spent the time thinking about where humanity was no. before hydrocarbons as yep. compared to where we are now. And that anyone can sit around and demonize hydrocarbons, given that history is, is crazy. I don't know of any technology or whatever that has saved more human lives than hydrocarbons. And I don't think most people really understand this. Yep. And worse, this lack of understanding opens people up to the idea that the poor societies in the world should actually be denied access to hydrocarbons for their own good. I'm making air quotes. <laughs> and this is just insane to me. What we need is a study, a study that lays all of this out and presents it in a way that is easily digestible to both the expert and non-expert. If only there were just a, such a study, John. If only. Well, guess what? What? You're not going to believe this, but there actually is. Wow. And it was just released. Mind blown. And it gets better. Guess who we have as our guest today? Who? <laughs> just happens to be the authors of that study. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I can't believe how luck happens. How, how does this happen? I don't know. But it did. So I welcome to the podcast, the Heritage Foundation's, I should say welcome back to the podcast, the Heritage Foundation's Chief Statistician, Data Scientist, and Senior Research Fellow, Mr. Kevin Dyeratna, Dr. Kevin Dyeratna, I should say. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Good to be and, with you. And I'm so excited to bring someone new, a Heritage Foundation colleague who's never been on the podcast, and assuming he doesn't royally screw up, which I know that he will not. <laughs> I present to our audience Mr. Miles Pollard. He is a policy analyst in the, at the Heritage Foundation for Enter. Is are, are you a policy analyst for something specific, or just like a policy analyst in the center? Just a general policy analyst, Jack. General policy analyst. Sorry, you're not a general policy. You you know lots of stuff, and you're going to demonstrate <laughs> that right now. Right now. So, gentlemen, we have a new study on our hands. We do. And this study tells how awesome fossil... F I, I just used the word that I hate to use. Oh. I hate using the word fossil fuels. How awesome hydrocarbons are. There we go. It does. And what <laughs> they bring to the table. Is that true? Did I misread the... Uh, so, Jack, no, it's interesting you mentioned that. What we look at is specifically energy consumption itself throughout the world, throughout uh -huh. history and throughout the world, and how human flourishing hinges on the access to affordable, reliable, and resilient forms of energy. And wait, wait, let me go interrupt Jack. Just curious, what form of energy has that traditionally taken? It hydrocarbons. Been, yes, yes, hydrocarbons. <laughs> You're right, Jack. All right. Yes. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, so what we look at is how society has um, dependent, depended on and benefited from access to affordable and reliable energy. And we have seen, you know, we, um, you know, we're letting this podcast operate. We have lights on in the room. We have lights on throughout the Heritage Foundation. Uh, there's, I drove my car to work this morning. Um, so many things throughout this country and throughout this world depend on access to affordable and reliable energy, which sadly people take for granted. And what we looked at here is the inherent link between factors that hinge on the use of reliable energy and the consumption of energy itself. And we found this link is quite, not only tremendous, quite significant, but um, this link is inextricable. Now, how far back did you go in what you looked at? 
Uh, it's a great question, Jack. So we uh, we looked at uh, energy consumption from the early 1900s onwards, um, as well as links to life expectancy, as well as other factors. But what we also looked at, and we have some charts in the paper, we encourage all of our viewers to view this paper on heritage.org. Um, you could follow me on Twitter at KDD0211. Miles, are you on Twitter? Yes, I am. You can follow what me at handle? Miles J. Pollard. Yes. So I will be – this uh, study came out literally about an hour or two ago. I will tweet this study out. I'm sure Miles will too if he hasn't already. Um, but – so there's some charts here. That's the reason why I encourage you all to look at the paper. But one thing we looked at, which um, spans an earlier time horizon um, for at times than um, what uh, – some of the other figures I was referring to was the share of households using technologies, including running water, refrigerators, toilets that flush. Um, you, you might recall, for example, I don't know if you've um, heard, like in the 1700s, 1800s, many people don't seem to realize that we didn't have flushing toilets um, back then. Um, and many other things, radios, automobiles, vacuum cleaners, uh, landline phones, and so forth, um, have really proliferated since uh, the the use of um, hydrocarbons and other forms of energy. And uh, society has literally taken off as, an a as a result of access to affordable and reliable energy. Um, income has increased, life expectancy has increased. And we also in the study look at countries throughout the globe and see their heterogeneity regarding energy consumption and how they rise and fall according to these standards. Now, have you, did you, I don't mean to bring something up that's not in the study, so this is not a criticism. And I haven't Please. read the, the, the most recent study, the most recent version, though I've read past versions. Um, having looked at this issue a number of times in the past myself, one of the things, and I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, that strikes me in looking at this issue is that human life expectancy, hum, uh, 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 average income for people generally described as in the West basically flatlined for thousands of years until the early seven, mid-1700s when two things happened. We started burning coal and our good for, uh, uh, the, 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 the enlightenment and the new thinking around economics that occurred at that time. So our good friend Adam Smith and others like that. Then that was the combination of those two things, free markets and access to energy that really kicked off this meteoric rise in human living standards. And did you go? Did you go back that far? And if not, why not? Uh, and just just curious about that. Well, Jack, we actually went all the way back down to the second century A.D. Okay. Yep. Uh, so we mainly explored, and that was the majority of what I did and my co-author Richard Stern did. We went a historical perspective before we started getting the good data that uh, Kevin was able to create with these charts. And we looked at the uh, earliest steam engine, built in 1698. That was one of the most important and pivotal moments in human history. And like you said, it was powered with coal. But it's also these technological innovations that allowed us to utilize these dense forms. Coal had existed for thousands of years. Humans had harvested it. <laughs> it might have existed for millions of years. <laughs> some might say. But human utilization of it really did take the technological know-how on how to create a steam turbine to utilize coal in the most efficient way possible. And I guess from that point on, goddess, that was like the, the first – is it true – is my memory correct that, that uh, humanity's income basically 
was stagnant for the pre, you know, for a yeah. long, for many, many years prior to that. Yes, Jack, you wouldn't be wrong in saying that. Uh, the only innovations that we really had was how are we going to, instead of working ourselves and using our muscles to harvest our food and get everything we need to live, we had to rely on horsepower. And then we started inventing water water wells. And then we started trying to mine some coal out in uh, southern England. And we realized, hey, this coal is actually used, you know, useful for being burned. And how could we create an invention that could then harness that energy and pump out all this water that's in this mine? And, and we, we also had the advent of a dissipation of, of societies that were run by kings and everyone was were, were subject to the king and the emergence of democracy and all the democratic revolutions. And like I said, Adam Smith and people who began thinking about what human freedom looks like. I, the only reason I just I keep bringing that up is that um, I think that's also very important to this story. Oh, absolutely, Jack. You could see that, you know, the pharaoh had all the power. He commands all of his subjects. But the moment that individual people, the merchant class, were able to get access to energy on their own and they didn't have to use human subjects to do so, that's when we saw the prospering of society. We could trade all the free goods that we wanted and everyone wanted it. And the reason, one one of the reasons I think it's important to remember that evolution is that I would argue that we're headed back there a little bit. You are you are going from a democratization of society and access to energy to a consolidation of power over those things. And to expect that um, the opposite won't occur from a society standpoint, I think would be a either an ignorance of history or a misreading of history. All right, what do you guys think? Absolutely, Jack. So, and we, we look at this from the 1900s onwards and throughout the globe from um, the most recent years, and we find that there is a significant amount of heterogeneity across the world in terms of per capita energy consumption, which precisely plays into the point that you're, you're mentioning about democratization of energy. And we find that the countries that have higher levels of per capita energy consumption are the ones that flourish in all these metrics. Um, not just in income, but income is a huge thing, and not just in poverty reduction, poverty reduction is a huge thing, but in terms of, say, uh, the number of doctors available, in terms of child mortality, in terms of maternal mortality. You mentioned earlier in this podcast um, clean air and clean water. Well, you know what? The number of deaths due to dirty water, the number of deaths due to air pollution, they plummet once you actually have access uh, across, the, uh, across the spectrum to affordable and reliable energy. Did you guys happen to do any um, comparison of your findings to the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom? That is a great question. I was talking to our wonderful colleague, Anthony Kim, about doing that going forward. Former podcast guest, by the way. Oh, great. And um, I have not yet, but that is a great question. That is something I would love to do. But I, yeah, I, I suspect that there is a, a big link. And there are also out there some indices of democracy that would also be worth looking at. Yeah, that's. I guess that's my point. That I'm always interested in that, in that element of it, because I suspect it's the case that strong democratic institutions combined with access to energy are really the key to societal progress. And that one without the other doesn't really do it for you. I bet that you'll find if you have a high index score, you also probably have energy freedom. And that's what gives you prosperity. Oh, absolutely, Jack. And there's no doubt that the countries that 
we are noticing that prosper in, um, in our study, including, say, countries such as New Zealand, the Netherlands, Denmark, the United States, and other countries that are toward, not necessarily at the top, but more towards the top of the index of economic freedom compared to countries such as Lesotho, Djibouti, Zimbabwe that don't do so well in terms of the index of economic freedom. You could see the stark difference, not only in terms of per capita energy consumption, but these indices of human flourishing that we look at. One of the areas where I think that this would be especially relevant in terms of public policy is policies that are meant to help struggling countries develop. Absolutely, It's Jack. so often the case that Western institutions don't put those two things together, strong democratic institutions and access to energy. In fact, they ignore them. They not only try to deny struggling countries access to the sources of energy that they need in order to develop, but they also don't demand, I think, inappropriate ways, or they, they don't help bring about in appropriate ways these strong democratic institutions that would actually allow them to rise out of poverty. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, actually. And I think the bottom line is that if you want some of these uh, indigent countries to prosper, uh, particularly those in, say, Africa and Latin America. We need to figure out how to get them access to affordable and reliable energy. And that is the bottom line. And there's so many other things that people and lawmakers are trying to do to achieve this goal, but I don't think that enough people realize that this is really the building block to doing so. It's the first step. You can't do these other things like, say, improve their education systems and maybe, you know, I guess you could send some more doctors over there in terms of humanitarian aid and stuff like that. But if they have access to affordable and reliable energy, then they could be more like these Western nations. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sending doctors and stuff, humanitarian aid is all fine and nice. I'm not against it, per se. But that's not how you turn a country around. No, absolutely not. Um, Now, Miles, I'm going to come to you now. All right. I know that you have done a lot of research on this project. It's a big, it's a big piece. It's a big project. Um, the paper is, is substantial. Now, I suspect, like you know, all of us, we kind of knew, we kind of suspected the answer before we went in. We knew, you know, we, if you're in this sort of business, you know, access to energy is so important to everything. And I guess the goal here was to demonstrate that with facts looking back. But here's my question to you, given all of the research you did on it. Was there anything that you found that surprised you or you thought was particularly interesting or that that stood out as something? This is this fact or this set of facts really makes the point. Well, I think it has to do with energy density, uh, Jack. When I was talking about how you only have the human muscle that could then pile your fields or collect the firewood for the day. Uh, when you transition to horsepower, when you then could use water wheels, when you finally get to steam turbines run by coal, this is where we were able to use more and more dense and uh, powerful fuels. We were able to harvest uh, petroleum and natural gas, and we're able to utilize these in more and more efficient technologies in order to allow for energy to flourish to all people. Uh, our paper actually covers three of these main ways. Uh, first, we talked about the construction of steam turbines and how that's been used in everything from coal, natural gas, uh, and even nuclear power plants, which I know you're, you're quite familiar with. Um, and we also talked about the internal combustion engine, how you need that to you know, run tractors and you know, allow everyone to have autonomous movement, transportation. And it's having these dense fuels that can be able to be used on an individual level that really does allow for human flourishing. 
And we also talk about electricity. You know, the ability for all of us right here to be talking, recording this right now, is the fact that we have a power grid that operates affordably and reliably to provide power to us right now. Do you th one of the interesting issues I think to discuss around this area and around power density is if you look historically at giant leaps in society, it is all around energy density. Mm -hmm. That it was the uh, the ability to to burn whale oil gave us a leap, and then coal gave us a leap, and that and sort of hydrocarbons gave us a leap. I and we've sort of been there for a, a while. I think nuclear, if we really brought, if, if nuclear was really able to be used because of the density of, of that technology, that could be where the next leap in, in, in human progress happens. And I suspect that, well, I'll tell you at least my, my view. Um, one of my big critiques of how sort of the pro-nuclear policy community goes about nuclear is we talk about how good it is and it is and how much potential it has and it does. Um, but we don't talk enough about or think enough about the economics of it. Like, like it has to be economically competitive. To me, we shouldn't be building nuclear plants because it's cool. It is cool, but that's not reason enough to build them. If, if you can power stuff with coal for Hydro. more for, or whatever, you know, or wind, I don't care. Like, it's, they, these should be market decisions. The big difference maker, why I think nuclear will ultimately be what we move towards, is because we're going to have, because of, uh, because of the energy requirements of technology, this massive increase in demand for electricity. And I think that's where the next, I think that will drive the economics for nuclear in the future, and not the distant future, in the near and midterm. And, that, and we will have no choice but to rethink how we do nuclear because that will be the power source necessary in order to drive the next big leap in, in human progress. I don't know, that's that a, could be the that's key kind of what I think. or one of the keys to lifting Africa out of poverty then. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Well, nuclear is um, assuming the world stays on this carbon dioxide-centric trajectory, which I'll fight till the day I die, but I might be alone in that fight. Um, but assuming we stay on that, nuclear is truly the only source able to come even close to doing what we need to do. And, you know, those of us in the West, we're set up pretty good. Um, well, when Miles and, was referring to energy density, I couldn't help but think of nuclear. Yeah. Because when you think about yeah. the, the power, no pun intended, that, yeah. that can and be utilized. Nuclear is the only thing that would ha work. And, and, yeah. and I would make mention, Jack, uh, that we can think even simpler. When we're talking about nations like Africa, they're not going to start up a nuclear program. But what we can talk about is their ability to use hydroelectricity. They're able to dam up their rivers. They have it. It's a natural resource. They can use it to power uh, their individual towns and cities. And... You know, there is a lot of viability to a very simple solution. We've been using water power since, you know, before Jesus walked the earth. Um, man, getting religious on me. <laughs> um, I have a no, – I'm not going to go there. I, well, now I said it. I had um, – this has nothing to do with anything. And we don't have a lot of time, so I shouldn't even mention it, but I will now. Um, my cousin had a bar mitzvah last weekend, and I went to it. And um, I've often on this podcast mentioned my Jewish heritage. I've not mentioned, probably because I don't really talk about it, my own religiosity, which is not very Jewish. And it's the first time, despite my Jewish heritage, having been to a complete Jewish um, 
service. It was actually pretty good. You know, I was surprised. I was. It was interesting. So anyway, um, but enough about my Jewish experience <laughs> over the weekend. And back to uh, to uh, getting energy to poor folks. I, you know, we're we're going to go off script here for a little bit, and I'm going to um, debate you slightly on not debate you. Present a different. Uh, engage in a conversation. All right, I'm ready, Jack. Um, I've come. Ar- I, I I don't know how I feel about hydro anymore. Um, really, Jack? Why? I've, cha- I've become sympathetic to some of the environmental concerns with hydro. I'm not. We're just having a conversation. I'm not like pr- 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 promoting policy one way or, or another. Um, I think nuclear is such a better alternative. Like really? nu- nuclear um, has virtually zero environmental impact, and damming up rivers can have significant environmental it can, impact. It can definitely affect the local ecology. I'll agree with you on yeah. that. But there are solutions to around those. Are, so again, I, I don't know enough about this. I'm just I'm I am articulating thoughts in my head without knowing anything about it, um, and I'm interested in it. Because I'm, I've always been one that thinks we should be able to develop whatever whatever in, industrial development private people want to build. If they own the property and have the capital, go do it. Are there ways to build modern dams that do protect? Salmon um, fisheries and yeah, all, all that. that stuff. Yes, there are different types of ponds that we can use. And I think what we're really looking for, especially we're talking about these developing countries, is what is the lowest hanging fruit? What are they actually able to build? Yeah. Uh, why is China building Ecuador's dams? And why have they maybe not done such a great job? It's because it's very hard in the international uh, world to actually fund a coal or natural gas power plant in many of these developing countries. They're wanting to be carbon-free. They don't want to right. invest these things. But these people actually need electricity. Right. They are cutting down forests to get the firewood to warm themselves and to cook their foods at night. They are breathing in carcinogens because they don't have access to electricity. So why not build them a coal plant? Well, that would be great, but they don't have the necessary capital yeah. to do so. And the Sierra Club but, actually brags about how many hydro uh, plants they've stopped in developing countries. And what we should actually realize is giving them hydro may actually – and damming can actually be very useful. When you talk about the regular flooding that the Mississippi used to experience, that we, have the, we built the Tennessee Valley Authority to stop – those rivers would regularly flood and it would devastate entire communities. Hydro can have a, a role in helping manage the ecology. A lot of the floodplains where you know, normally it would destroy everything there, we can actually use for farming, which can help sustain all of these growing populations in developing countries. So, like with everything, we should build nuclear smartly. We should build hydro smartly. Yeah, I guess. Like, I'm not, I'm not against that. It's just a, an evolving thought that I've been having recently. I've been thinking more about conservation issues and... Um, and, and, and such things. So I think that, I think it's an I, again it comes down to we should have all the options Absolutely. available. And when government gets involved in choosing what option, it begins distorting things. So if it might make more sense to build a coal plant, but if you can't build a coal plant, people need electricity, so they're going to dam up a, a a river. And may, maybe they can do it in an ecologically sound way. Maybe they can't, but they've limited their options because someone has told them not told them. 
someone has limited their access to capital based on CO2, which that's the crime. And this even affects Americans, Jack. I mean, Puerto Rico, you know, through all the devastation that's gone through there, uh, I'm, I'm from Florida, so we get to talk to quite a few of those people who've gone through that. A lot of those families can't even get regular electricity. And these, you know, this is an American territory, and they're having to run diesel generators just to keep the power on. And Good yeah, old diesel. Good old diesel. Everyone breathing in their own diesel generator fumes. You know, it's... it. It is a remarkable uh, development that Western nations aren't willing to invest in nuclear or in hydro for all these developing countries where it can be emissions free. And we can do this in a very smart way. And if they can develop their own indigenous coal, natural gas and oil, you know, despite the refining issues that come with the latter two, uh, they should be able to use it. And as they are going to increase their uh, kilowatt hours per capita, they actually get to develop. What uh, I thought was very interesting when Kevin and I were going through the data was basically we saw between one and 10,000 kilowatt hours per capita. We essentially found that they're living at a subsistence level. Once you go from 10 to 20, they're able to see a precipitous drop in air pollution and unsafe drinking water. Only people who are rich enough to have access to this energy can engage in all of these pollution mitigation uh, efforts. And once you go from 20 to 30, you pretty much solve the doctor and the food choice. Now, these are very big ballparks using you know data. And we've found the vir- virtual eradication of poverty once you reached about 100 kilowatt hours per capita. I'm not saying every single country has to get there. And I th- do think that Every single country should develop whatever resources they have indigenously and able to reach that goal. Kevin, what say you? We're, we're coming up to the end here. What is the main thing you would like to leave audiences with about the study? The bottom line is, is that access to energy throughout each nation and throughout the world is the key to uh, prosperity and flourishing. Um, not just from an economic perspective, although that is definitely a big part of it, but in terms of health and human health, in terms of child mortality, in terms of maternal mortality, in terms of life expectancy, in terms of clean water, in terms of clean air. The bottom line is the more we have access to affordable and reliable energy, the more it's available, more energy is available, and the more humans will benefit, the more humans will prosper. Well, there you go, folks. Thank you both so much. Now, you already mentioned this, but I want to do it real quick. Where can folks find both of you? Where can they find the study? Go through that real quick for me. Uh, yeah, you may follow me on Twitter, KDD0211. The paper is on the Heritage Foundation website. I will tweet it out in just a little bit. And Miles also is, is on Twitter. Go ahead, Miles. Yep, you can find me at Miles J. Pollard at Twitter. So you can find me there, and I'll tweet it out as well. Awesome. Well, thank you. To everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out and email me. I want to hear from you. It's at, at the Power Hour at heritage.org. That's the Power Hour at heritage.org. Kevin, Miles, John, any final words? Subscribe to the Power Hour and share, please. There you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Subscribe. Thank you, John, Kevin Dyeratna, Miles Pollard. Thank you both very much for being a guest. Most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.